Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and in our New York studio, we have our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. Hey. Happy Emmys FYC season, everybody. It is (laughs) the month of June, which means that uh, it's just about time for Emmy voters to start filling out their ballots, which means TV people are everywhere. And... uh, We'll be talking about a good bit of that on this week's episode, including catching up with our colleague Rebecca Keegan, who's been witnessing a lot of this Emmy season chaos firsthand. But before we get into all of that, we have just a couple things to catch up on. And uh, Mike, you've been getting some feedback from some listeners about <laughs> last week's episode that uh, I think you wanted to, to step in and respond. Yeah. So so last week I said something like uh, we were talking about Cannes, we were talking about the, the grimness of the Cannes movies uh, that Richard was mm-hmm. describing and how we're hoping that there will come a time, you know, a year from now where people have started to figure out some solutions to the horrible things that are happening in our world. And in fact, also acknowledging that like probably these movies were even made before Brexit and Trump, right. you know, and all that stuff. But I think I said basically Europeans don't share American notions of progress, which I actually sort of stand by, but I feel like that is a horrible way of expressing it and made it sound like I was slamming all Europeans and painting them with one brush and suggesting right. that they don't un- like understand or want progress or anything. So I wanted to clarify real quick, since people actually took the time to respond and tell me what an idiot I was, which I do actually weirdly appreciate. I think I meant there's a peculiar American thing, not shared by all Americans, you know, but certainly by a lot of white Americans, at least, and probably a lot of people who came here willingly uh, or their families did that an idealism about progress that has been very long seen as one of the definitional things about America. When your great grandparents came here, you know, in steerage and then your grandparents who had a working class union job and your parents got a college education and you got to become part of like the elite or whatever, that happens a lot. And people get this idea like, wow, that's just how life works. And in Europe, when you've lived in the same like neighborhood for 2000 years, (laughs) you know, you may very strongly, more strongly than Americans believe in progress and the importance of it because you've seen your continent go through you know the middle ages etc but you're not going to have this sense of like oh that just happens naturally i just like float along and and so there's an optimism in america that is not necessarily shared in europe there may be a more constructive deliberative approach to progress in europe than there is here that's what i meant right 
Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yes. I mean, we don't talk about the Italian dream or the Austrian dream. We talk about right. the American dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's reflected in a lot of movies where a lot of European films are really rooted in a sense of class that, that has a much deeper history to it than, than American movies do. Right. Class isn't necessarily like a way station in, in European it's movies the way it's treated yeah. here. And yeah. I think what's happening actually in America that's interesting is that we are becoming a country where class isn't a way station either mm-hmm. and dealing with the loss of that sort of optimism or naive it's Partly tay. why we're, everyone's gone insane. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, yeah. that's that, I just wanted to take a minute just because I appreciate people listening and I know and I don't want to like make dumb statements that offend people, but I hope that that clarifies a little bit. And I do apologize if people were offended by now, it. Now, can you please apologize for the New York Magazine review of Wonder Woman. <laughs> I know that you didn't write it, but just wait. Yeah, can we can we do that real quick? Because there's a lot of con- can you explain this whole thing? Oh man, yeah, Richard, you you explain it. Well, David Edelstein, who is a great film critic and and a really nice guy, I know that you know that's settled about a lot of nice guys who do stupid things. But he wrote a review of Wonder Woman that sounded a bit leering. That was you know sort of referring to Gal Gadot's beauty and sort of calling Israeli women a rare breed or a breed into themselves. I forget what the exact phrasing was. And people just kind of went crazy because it was it, it read like he was reducing this kind of moment where we have a female superhero in a female directed movie to a kind of like, you know, like he's ogling or whatever. And he, he was sort of bemoaning that the S&M sort of trappings of some of the original comics, which my understanding is that has more to do with the proclivities of a Wonder Woman creator or writer towards S&M rather than the character. So I don't know. He just brought all these sort of sexual elements to bear on his review. And then he wrote a, re- a sort of response to the outrage and, and that kind of further flamed, fanned the flames rather. I, I feel bad for him because like, it's never fun to be the target of, of kind of Twitter outrage. Yeah. At the same time, you do read the review and you're like, oh, this was not the tech to take, my friend. Right. Yeah. You know, it just it just kind of spoke to a sort of maybe he was he wasn't listening to the cultural conversation as closely as he should have been in, in, in the run up to seeing the movie and then writing about it. Yeah. It. Uh, I mean, the punishment these days does seem it's not worse than the crime because like he's fine. He's going to be fired or anything. But like, right. man, the uh, people get people get very worked up these days but you know i find i will take any opportunity to argue on social media about anything that it doesn't involve like politics or nuclear war or anything so (laughs) i think that might be part of it too like i've just been actually intentionally starting fights on facebook about dumb stuff like what's you know the most underrated beatles song and things like that my mom asked you to stop that really such a yeah yeah, please stop sorry um but she can just mute me (laughs) it's true it's true yeah, I don't know, Katie. I mean, did you were you paying attention to this at all? Like, did- yeah, I mean, I definitely, and I don't know who edited that article, and I don't want to speak for anybody, but I, you know, thought it like as someone who's edited a lot of reviews, including yours, Richard, like the the Israeli women line, I think is something I certainly would have cut, even though it was true to the writer's voice. But it's hard not to have a uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I thought on it because I just think of <laughs> so many things that I've edited or written that like then you look back on, you're like, oh mm-hmm. man, I if if anyone had noticed this, like I could have really been pinned to the wall. And Richard, I'm sure you had that feeling too. Not that you're likely to be ogling Israeli women, but there has to be some, at some point you're going to say something that's going to make someone mad and you hope that it's not going to cause an internet firestorm. Yeah. I mean, well, two things about that. I mean, one, like I absolutely can relate to like that feeling. Like I, this is a, a random anecdote, but you know, I was at a party once, a Halloween party and someone rested their arm or something on a shelf that and then everything it it collapsed the shelf and everything came tumbling down (laughs) including the sound system so the music screeched to a halt 
and I just for the rest of the night was just like dwelling in this this kind of like giddy guilty headspace of like thank god that wasn't me <laughs> you yeah. know you know so there is that sort of you're like oh but I also should say that like in terms of the the language of you know I I think that like I can get away with being maybe a little bit lecherous about Chris Hemsworth or whatever because like you know that sort of gaze is not as often applied to things like this and you know there's a much deeper and worse history for the way that women are, are sort of spoken about and viewed in film. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, the one thing is, and Stephanie Zatrick said this, so I don't feel 100% yeah. like the horrible white straight male, which is generally my role in this podcast. But she was like, look, okay, but on the other hand, like he's a mm-hmm. straight guy and he's yeah. turned on. Like, is he allowed to say that or not? Like, like because yeah. so many horrible things have happened when straight men were turned on, does that mean straight men can't be turned on? Because that seems like a problem. And I know that, I, I mean, so like... <sighs> That's all. I mean, like, totally fair to also say we're sick of having this treatment. It feels like objectifying. We're being belittled. Like, that is all 100% fair. But I also want to make, like, a tiny little voiced thing being like, straight men are allowed to be turned on, too. It's okay. Like, that's not, like, actually evil. No, no, I think it's more just the tone, tone. you know, it's and tone. and get your act and together. the context. Learn and, how to be not gross. I get it, you know, and and, it, and it's that like, Wonder Woman is a movie that doesn't have the male gaze because it's one of very very few mm-hmm. movies directed by a woman. <laughs> so that when you see the male gaze kind of applied in a review, it's like, wait, come on, like I thought this is just where we were going to get away from that, you know. And I think the other thing about it is that he wrote this 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 response where he clarified a lot of lines, you know, including the um, Israeli women line. And it was like, okay, those a lot of those responses make sense and seem much more reasonable. Right. The problem is we don't get to have we don't often get to have that conversation. So you have to be more diligent the first draft out or whatever, yeah. you know, the first version out to so you don't have to, you know, then write another equally long thing explaining, you know, what you meant. Isn't it a nightmare the idea of having to write line by line to defending something you wrote? Like I'd rather like just disappear from the planet than have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't I don't you know, again, I David is a nice guy and I I respect his writing a good deal. And I think that this was just you know, he stuck his foot in the bucket and yeah. it, and it happens. We all do it. I've done it. Yeah, I think know. your point is really right though. It's like, it's l- listening. Part of writing is listening and part of mm-hmm. listening is understanding the kind of cultural moment. And, yeah. you know, you can defend yourself on like sort of long-term idealistic grounds, but like at the end of the day, if you're tone deaf, like you're going to get a reaction that may yeah. not, you may not like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard, I look forward to your review of Suicide Squad 2 uh, getting us into a similar situation. <laughs> now I'm going to try. I'm going to try to get us into something. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah. I've been through it yeah, enough right. times. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of reviews, maybe less controversial, Richard, I think there was one movie coming out this week that you wanted to uh, take note of before we just dive fully into crazy TV season. Yeah, and actually, you know, it sort of does dovetail with both what Mike was talking about in terms of the Amer- the ossifying of the American dream and about marginalization of women. Beatrice at Dinner, which is this great indie that I saw at Sundance that's directed by Miguel Arteta and written by Mike White, which is the same writer-director team that did The Good Girl years ago with Jennifer Aniston. They collaborated on Mike White's show Enlightened, which is a masterpiece of television. You should watch if you haven't seen it. So this movie stars Salma Hayek as a Mexican immigrant who is a kind of massage therapist, spiritual healer. She does a lot of kind of Eastern kind of methods in terms of dealing with like holistic care and um so she has a client played by connie Britton, who is this rich woman in orange county and selma hayek's car breaks down and so 
her client invites her to dinner and one of the guests at the dinner is a sort of very Trumpian billionaire played by John Lithgow and they spar off of one another and sort of a lot of I don't know r- rumination on the American condition and psyche ensues and and it has a sort of a dark sad ending but it's a really fascinating really beautifully acted movie especially by Salma Hayek so I think that were it a just world she she would be in the best actress conversation this year I don't know if that's gonna I, I mean in a world where Isabel Huppert got that nomination for Elle like it seems like weirder things have happened it's true except Elle you know came out much later in the year this is a June release amidst a lot of other bigger movies so I don't know we'll see but you know some Hayek, you know, has been experiencing something of a resurgence lately, I feel like. She's popping up in, in sort of more high, in higher profile things here and there. She was cruelly robbed of an Oscar nomination a few years ago for the movie Savages, the Oliver Stone mm, uh, oddity. Yeah. She's so good as this villainess uh, in that. So maybe she'll get some justice here. But even if not, it's a really great I don't know. It 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 feels incredibly timely movie. So I I would I would urge everyone to see it. It won't do much to kind of soothe your Trump malaise, but at least it's kind of it's a kind of comforting pat on the shoulder. That's like yeah, me too. You know, I can get very I can get on Team Salma. That's oh yeah. yeah. Real quick, Richard, I think you might be allowed to talk about this by the time the episode airs. You saw the Mummy, right? I did see the Mummy. Yes. <laughs> uh, how's Oscar prospects for the Mummy? Well, um. Not great. Uh, I, I wish s- we were in video right now to see Richard's face just yeah. now. Um, I'm interviewing one of the actors in it, so I'm trying to be diplomatic. But to be fair, he's barely in it. But and this was never going to be an Oscar play. Oh, mercy! No, no, no. no, no, no. I think I'm just I'm curious about what this means for like Tom Cruise movie star because it seems very odd all around. Yeah, what it's a play for is the beginning of a big franchise. And mm-hmm. so you have the Universal logo come up. You know the da, 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 you know the music and the the planet, and then it. After that, that kind of plays, it shifts to this dark universe, which is this kind of new branding that that Universal's doing for potentially the beginning of this sort of monster franchise. So they're dredging up all their old mummy and, you know, all those old titles, the Lon Chaney kind of era stuff. In the same way that the Brandon Fraser mummy was in 1998, this is supposed to be the beginning of something new. Where, but instead of the like, unlike the mummy, the, the Brandon Fraser version, this one they're synthesizing mummy with supposedly vampires and you know there's dr jekyll is in this movie which is insane so (laughs) it's this really effortful like introduction to a would-be franchise and then the movie ends and you're like there is no way in hell that they're that they're ever going to make another one because it's just it's it's not good and it's a very bizarre choice for tom cruise i don't know i don't know why the heck he's in this movie I guess he saw some potential there, but I can't imagine how much money they're spending on building this franchise because they've got Johnny Depp, Tom Cruise, Russell Crowe, Javier Bardem, someone else. Wait, who's it's Johnny a, it, Depp playing? Uh, he's the Invisible Man, I think. Oh, so they I did a so, whole, Okay, so this is all bi- being built already. I, I guess I was I was. Oh yeah, no, there was yeah. a press release a couple. Weeks, I think it was while you were at Cannes where they reveal like all of the the members of this universe in a photo together. Yeah, Russell Crowe, Tom Cruise, Javier Bardem, Johnny Depp, and um, uh, Sophia Batella, who I think is the Mummy. Yeah, she's she's the villain in in this in this movie. Uh, so uh, yeah, they're money. really putting a lot behind this and paying a lot in talent, and I'm uh, I'm extremely curious about how this is going to go. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's I mean, I you know I didn't pay to see the movie, but so I I can't really urge people to see it, but like it is fascinating to watch this very kind of schematic 
studio plan, you know, sort of to un- to unveil a franchise, just kind of play out in movie form. You know, just just all these beats where you're like, okay, so they're setting, you know, they're setting up for this, they're setting up for that, and it, it feels very strained. I would say. So I don't know. I in a weird way, I'm kind of I would kind of root for it because it could be kind of interesting to see what they do with all these old monster properties. But this initial film in in the would be franchise doesn't seem to to augur much much I don't know, success. Well, on a personal note. In the early 2000s, I was part of an indie rock band named oh. after a uh, famous uh, British thief of Egyptian antiquities oh. called the Tokleys. And mummies were the theme of our first um, album. Oh. And we never really took off. So I, and we're now going to play the entire album. And it's- I think we'll try and get a little snippet. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so, I mean, I can just say, Universal, don't feel bad because others have tried. You know, <laughs> and, uh, Many giants other, have gone other talents yeah, have dashed themselves the steps on of giants, the mummy um, rocks. Okay. <laughs> so now we're going to welcome our Hollywood correspondent, Rebecca Keegan, all the way from Los Angeles, who, uh, based on an article that recently uh, published in the magazine, Rebecca, you've been very busy bowling with Emmy voters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is. It's Emmy season here. And this is after years of covering Oscar season. This is my first time covering Emmy season. And I was I was not com- prepared for what TV Academy member warned me about, which was a blinding wash of events. It's there's literally something going on every night of the week. And things have gotten really kind of over the top and extravagant, thanks in part to new players like Netflix and Amazon. So is it just is it crazier than the Oscars just because there's so much more television and you theoretically like any of these could be contenders at like award season where everyone kind of picks their horses to play? That's part of it. I mean, there's more than 450 scripted TV shows came out last year and they're all trying to just get noticed and find an audience. It's it's so hard, even with good shows to do that. The other issue is that the TV Academy has much looser rules about campaigning than the Film Academy does. So people are allowed to sort of throw these extravagant events. I mean, Netflix has taken over a huge, I think it's like 22,000, 24,000 square foot office space in Beverly Hills and filled it with all the props and, and costumes. And they're holding nightly events there for a month. Amazon took over the Hollywood Athletic Club for something like 10 days and did something similar. These are events that the Film Academy would probably give side eye to because they have this sort of really rigid idea of what's okay campaigning wise. Well, and the Film Academy has kind of notoriously been giving Amazon and Netflix the side eye already. And so it seems like they're like, all right, well, we can't play in your club. But at the uh, the Emmys, they don't have such a problem. They are kind of warmly embraced there. Yeah, I mean, Amazon has had a better time of it because they give these big theatrical releases to their movies like Manchester by the Sea, which the Film Academy was pretty jazzed by, you know, gave it a Best Picture nomination. But certainly the Film Academy's relationship with Netflix is is pretty fraught. And one interesting thing that happened this week is we're in the midst of uh, elections for, for the Film Academy Board of Governors, and Ted Sarandos had tossed his hat in the ring. His executive branch did not sort of advance him to the next round of voting. Considering how much money his company is spending in Hollywood, how many people he hires in Hollywood, how important the company is, sort of fascinating that his his peers were like, no, we, we don't want you making decisions about the <laughs> film academy. Never mind. Stay over there. So he'll retreat to his 25,000 foot square foot FYC space and uh, and live with it from there. Yeah, somehow he'll make do. He'll get by. Rebecca, why doesn't Netflix just like have some theatrical events? Are they just trying not to get sort of guilted into that? 
Well, that's, you know, they, they stand very firmly by their business model, this sort of day and date business model, and they really believe in it. But it certainly seems like wherever you look, they are, they are coming up against people who are annoyed by their business model, whether it's people booing the logo at Cannes or the news this week that the, the Netflix movie Okja, which is directed by the beloved South Korean director Bong Joon-ho, won't get a traditional a lot of cinemas there will not be playing it because of netflix's distribution strategy so i think i think they believe really firmly in their model and a lot of the rest of the world is is threatened or annoyed by that model. so it's really just it's only the windowing thing that's causing it it's basically they they would put it in theaters but the theaters won't take it because it's going to they insist that it has to be live on netflix at the same time right exactly and and amazon has said we're fine with windowing. You know, Manchester by, by the Sea played for months and months in theaters before it finally went to Amazon Prime. And and Amazon's business model is different from Netflix's. You know, they're hoping that you will buy some stuff while you are tuning in to see this Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning movie. Netflix's model is different. They 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 just want you subscribing. Yeah, someone said to me uh, at Cannes that Amazon is trying to play the game and Netflix is trying to change it. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's an interesting mm-hmm, interpretation. I think is a kind of good distillation. But back to these kind of FYC for your consideration things, Rebecca. They're, you know, because they're doing a few of them in New York too. There was like a Master of None thing, um, mm-hmm. a couple others. Do you see? Is there any sort of like way to gauge whether they actually have an effect? Like, do you think anyone is swayed by all this kind of hoopla that you're experiencing in LA? Um, you know, in the run up to nominations. I have talked to TV Academy voters who basically will check out a show if there is supposed to be a good event for it. You know, Mm -hmm. for instance, HBO uh, a few years ago became known for having just like really great food at their events. And, (laughs) and, and people, I mean, God bless them. Not every TV Academy member has a, a a super rich 90s syndication deal. You know, some of them are, are regular folks trying to pay their rent and the prospect of going to these, going to these events, having some great food. And if it means they're going to check out a show they hadn't checked out before, they, they'll they do that. I also think you'll see sort of after the events, the showrunners and the actors will often just kind of glad hand with members in the, in the, uh, at some, wherever they're serving the food or in the lobby of the TV Academy. And they'll have you know, often meaningful conversations with people about about show pitches, about ideas, and and people do tend to sort of go home from those conversations feeling like, hey, I really liked that guy. I'm going to vote for him. Of the 20, you know, dramas that I love, this one I have a personal connection with the showrunner. I'm going to vote for that. It's just retail politics. I mean, it's, it's human nature. It is. If you're going to go and spend some time with somebody, yeah. you're going to probably come away liking them and by extension their project more than you would have otherwise. Right. And people also start to sort of lobby among their peers for certain shows or right. they'll, you know, just every TV Academy member has a, a pile of screeners that would dwarf anything we see during Oscar season. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just huge. And so people, if they have a great experience at one of these events, sometimes they'll say to their peers and colleagues, you know, you really got to check out episode three of American Gods. It's where it's just awesome. And it's where the show takes off. And so it kind of has a, it it kind of helps people separate what they're really going to watch from that giant pile. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine being a a completist in the TV Academy being like, "Ah, I'm going to really watch everything. Even, 
Yeah, like even one of the people I interviewed for the story in the magazine, Hama Washington, who uh, runs the TV Academy, told me, look, we don't we we know nobody's going to watch everything. We don't expect everybody to watch everything. Our hope is we help people, you know, find shows that they really connect with. So who are the members of the TV Academy? We spend, we spend a lot of time stressing about who is in the tel- the uh, film Academy and the diversity there. Is the TV Academy kind of a similar lot of a lot of uh, old school white men or is it a different bunch? It's a different bunch. It's much bigger. Uh, the Film Academy is like 7,000 people and the TV Academy is, I think, about 22,000 people. Um, it's a lot easier to get into the TV Academy. It's it's not as rigorous as the Film Academy where you need sort of two people to sponsor you or suggest you. The TV Academy, you need a couple of credits and 200 bucks and you can get in. Oh, man. Um, yeah, let's so, do it, so, guys. Yeah, exactly. First, you got to get the the credit. I mean, there you you do have to actually be working actively in the industry. But uh, unlike the Film Academy, which sort of sits back and scratches its chin and says, "But is the work you're doing of a quality?" Blah blah blah. You know, the TV Academy's like, "Okay, you're working, and your check cleared, so you're in." Another. I feel like they could that could be more if they wanted it to be. I'm just that's just a piece of free advice to the TV. <laughs> <laughs> It probably could edit, a, you know, a funny thing is I have had multiple people who are in the TV Academy say to me, look, if I look at that $200 out of the amount of food I eat at their events over the course of the year, it's really a great investment, yeah. you know, saving, saving me a lot of money at Trader Joe's. So yeah, it's, so, but because it's a little more democratic, it tends to be, there isn't as high of a barrier to entry. So it is just a much broader group of people. Interesting too, any TV Academy member can nominate him or herself. So you see these huge ballots that, you know, just, just for one category, like uh, so for supporting actor drama, uh, uh, I guess it was guest star drama last year, there were just hundreds and hundreds of people who all put themselves forward. So when you're scanning the ballot, you know, it it can be pretty overwhelming. It can be pretty blinding. I think it's actually a problem with their system that they probably ought to take a look at because it it tends to just make people prejudiced toward those names they recognize. Because when you're looking at hundreds of names, how, why are you going to sort of check out someone who's not totally on your radar screen, not a star you're already familiar with. But also like, this is, this is, I didn't actually realize this. So like, basically if I ran the big bang theory, I'd be like, everyone on the show has to join the Academy. I'll cover your $200 entry fee <laughs> and we'll get Emmys for the, uh, till the end of time. Yeah. Well, and an interesting thing that the shows go through is for sure. They want everybody in the TV Academy. They encourage everybody who works on a show to, to, to join. And why wouldn't you? But they also, unlike with Oscar campaigns where people make sometimes these very kind of calculated decisions about which actor they're going to back from their movie. You know, who does Harvey Weinstein really think can bring home the trophy, this person versus that person? The the TV networks and the, and the shows tend to just say, let's just put everybody. We can get everybody on the ballot from our huge ensemble show, so let's just put them there. It's very different strategy from oscars where there are consultants spending a lot of time making a case for this actor getting the backing over that actor now and i think the one thing about the oscars that you know that has been sort of proven over the years is that winning a best picture oscar for example means a a significant uh, usually financial bump you know for the movie it'll it'll do better box office it'll it'll kind of play in more theaters after the oscars 
what do you think the benefit of an Emmy is? I mean, is it is it really just kind of the the prestige of it all, or do you think that there is a as a recognizable sort of effect on a show's success? Because the way that they're timed, it doesn't necessarily feel like that 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 might be true. I mean, you know, a show winning an Emmy, you know, eight nine months after the season aired. It doesn't seem to me that it necessarily affects ratings or anything. But do do you think that's true, Rebecca? It's interesting. I actually I do think Emmys really mean something, and and part of the reason they do is that ratings mean less than ever. Right. You know, we don't have that many apart from reviews. There aren't many metrics to say this show is a quote unquote success. Mm -hmm. So if you can say we have no idea what the ratings are for this Netflix show or this you know, tiny show on a, on a niche cable network doesn't draw in a huge audience, but it's got four Emmy nominations. It sort of makes it rise to the top of, of, of people's consciousness and makes people say, okay, I will check that out. Certainly the, the telecast itself and, and how people sort of behave on the red carpet, whether they have a particularly sort of charming or interesting speech, those things do drive people to check out shows I mean, I remember even that David Harbour speech at the SAG Awards helped a lot of people know who he even is. I mean, there are a lot of people who had no idea who he was. And I think people who were sort of curious about that show saw a reason to check it out. They they became more interested in it. So it's I think it's hard to it's not as easy to quantify as as box office is, because as you point out, I mean, the ratings are it's all delayed. But I do think there's this sort of weirdly unmeasurable quality where it helps shows stand out from the pack and, and brings them to the attention of wider audiences. What shows are standing out, you know, as you kind of do this this campaign tour? I mean, what are the big ones that people are talking about? Well, I will say, I mean, the, the Netflix shows are getting a lot of conversation especially because of that space that all, you know, all these mm-hmm. TV Academy members are sort of making a, a pilgrimage over there to check it out. Definitely the crown is on everybody's minds for, for drama. It's interesting too, because game of Thrones isn't a contender this year. And so there are a lot of shows that would like to fill the gap that that one has left. It also, it seems like master of none is another one that a lot of people are talking about this year. It's fascinating how much the, the Netflix shows are on people's minds. Rebecca, what's the craziest of these stunty events that you've seen or been to or heard of? Well, let's see. The show Underground, which has since been canceled um, by WGN America, had last year, I didn't attend it, but had a massive um, gospel choir at the House of Blues with a huge brunch. And it was a, a really big hit with members. It was a sort of experiential event. Grease Live also had an entire carnival. Literally, they built a carnival to promote that. So some of the ones, some of the ones that have these sort of, you know, whether it's live performers or, or or kind of just built out event spaces, those seem to really capture people's attention. And Good it job. appears that Underground that. Uh, received zero Emmy nominations. Right. So I mean, that's the thing is, you, you know, you throw a great, you throw a great event. It doesn't necessarily, not only did it not receive Emmy nominations, the show is now looking for a new network. Yeah. So um, a great party does not necessarily mean a, a great future for your show but a good a good match or rubric for anyone you know in la or possibly new york who's looking to, to party hop or whatever or, or get good swag oftentimes the networks that are most hungry for it and are less likely to get it 
do the best things, the biggest that's right. things in that's my experience. True. Go to those yeah. WGN that's true that people with Yeah. Um yeah. and and but I think that I think that it also a good rubric is to follow the food like you said, like you know, go to, go where the best food is. It was a bad food year at Cannes, Rebecca. I don't know if you felt the same way, but even even the <laughs> Netflix party, I mean they were passing around a plate that was just what you, you would you would take one strawberry on a toothpick and it was like that is not party food, my friends. So. Well, you know what shocked me was the fact that Okja, the sort of the Netflix movie that was supposed to be about basically promoting veganism or vegetarianism, mm-hmm. they served ham. <laughs> Very strange. And I was like, this seems weird. I know yes. it's France, but come on, guys. You I'm know, playing just... the world's smallest accordion for you guys. For too. <laughs> Rebecca, you are, uh, you'll be in the belly of the beast for a season for the next few months. And uh, people should check out your story and Vanity Fair for more details on this. And um, we will definitely be quizzing you for more insane stories from the Emmy circuit. Good. I'll be bringing my Tupperware around. Um, this <laughs> Line those pockets with plastic bags. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, Richard, now we're going to share your interview with Caitlin Olson, who is the star of The Mick, but maybe even more familiar to people as a star on uh, It's Always Setting in Philadelphia. And uh, you, the, the Mick, you know, it's a network sitcom, so it kind of comes with that, like, oh, it's there, it's in the world, it doesn't get the same prestige TV attention. But I think you were you were a big fan of the show and wanted to talk to her for that. Yeah, I mean, credit to Hulu. You know, I, um, I, I, I saw that it was coming out. I've always enjoyed Caitlin Olson on It's Always Sunny. She she has to deal with a lot as the sole, you know, female regular on that on that sort of very deliberately bro-y show. This was an interesting opportunity for her to take the lead. And and so I, I sort of took note of the show and then didn't watch it. And then when maybe seven, ep- six episodes had aired, went to Hulu and was kind of bored one Sunday afternoon or something and was like, oh, maybe I'll check this out. And it is such a funny show. It's from two writers. It's from It's Always Sunny. So there's, there's kind of a through line there. It's, you know, she plays this kind of messy, you know, sort of washout person whose sister is wealthy and then gets hauled off to jail with her husband for tax evasion or they or they flee they flee uh, you know the police and um so she ends up having to take care of these kids at this in this mansion in connecticut so it's kind of a fish out of water sort of class kind of comedy but uncle buck kind of thing very, yes yes exactly it's 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 very uncle buck but with even more ostentatious wealth but it's it's just it's sharp it's it's kind of raunchy, but like not in an overly aggressive way. It's just, it's a really clever, good show. And, um, and she really holds the center of it beautifully. So it was really fun to talk to her. Yeah. So, uh, what's, uh, what's some of the highlights of what you got to talk about that people are about to hear? Uh, I don't remember. It was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. We will leave it there. Yeah. People will find out. Yeah. So now I'm on the line with Caitlin Olson, who is the star and an executive producer of the Fox series The Mick, which just ended its first season and has been renewed already for a second. Everyone should watch it on Hulu if they can. It's really, really funny. Caitlin, you probably best know from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which she's been on for the past 12 years, which is pretty nuts. So Caitlin, thank you for being with us. Of course. My pleasure. Well, congrats on the show. It's um, I was a little bit late in coming to it. I think I I started watching in like episode five and then happily went back and binged the, the, the ones I hadn't seen and eagerly awaited each coming week. It's, it's really, oh, really funny. Yeah. Thank you. It's pretty good, right? It is. You know, you're obviously an executive producer, and it was co-created by or created by by Dave and John Shernan, who are It's Always Sunny writers. So it has that tone. But can you talk a little bit about like what the origin stories for this show is and like when you got involved and, and how all that played out? 
Yeah, so when Dave and John came to Sunny and wrote for a bunch of seasons, we just kind of became really good friends. They're really funny people, and we would hang out outside of work, and eventually they wanted to branch off and create their own show. They were very respectful and never never really came to me while they were creating it, but, but I knew that they were writing something with me in mind as the main character, at least just to sort of use to create the character. I don't think anybody really ever thought I'd be able to do it, but in the whole process takes a while. So a couple of years later when they when Fox picked it up, they asked me if I would be able to do it. It sort of coincided with a renegotiation on and on Sunny. Um mm-hmm. and so I I really did. I was very flattered, but I didn't want to do two shows. I love being on Sunny. I love being on Sunny just as an actor. I get to come in for a couple months out of the year and just play around with my best friends and act and do a great show. And I have two very little kids at home, so that was kind of fine for me. But then I read the pilot, and I just thought it was so good that I was like, okay, maybe we move to working full-time year-round. Yeah, how does that work, juggling the two shows and the two characters? I mean, there are some similarities, but they are pretty different people. Was that kind of confusing ever, or was it structured in such a way that you were really focused on one at a time? Well, we shoot Sunny in the spring. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a cable show, so we're sort of off schedule. And the mix shoots in the fall and ends in the winter. So it sort of it sort of times out that I can do both. They don't bump into each other at all. And so as far as making the characters different, yeah, I mean, that was definitely something that I was very aware of and I, I wanted to do. There's going to be some similarities because they were writing to my strengths and there's just certain things that I like doing or if I'm playing around, just kind of comes out. But when I when we first started, it did take a few weeks to really just be very focused and aware of not doing sweet D things and making D faces and stuff like that. <laughs> right. um, but I think they're different. They feel very different to me now. I was concerned about that in the beginning and now I don't really think about it. They feel like two completely different people for me now. Yeah, I, I think they are definitely. And and I think that something that's really particularly interesting about the, the Mick for me is you have that sunny tone, you know, where it's it's dark and the character, your mm-hmm. character is sort of a mess and like in this, but in this kind of like lovable way. And yet there are kids involved. You know, so directly involved, I mean, in every episode. So I'm just curious, you know, especially with um, Jack Stanton, who plays Ben, the the youngest son, who's pretty young. I mean, I I think he's supposed to be, what, seven on the show? Yeah, he's eight in real life. He turned eight while we were shooting. How the heck do you handle that? Because he's surrounded by some pretty, like, adult material, let's say. (laughs) How does that work when when kind of talking to him about it and shooting it with him? Um, Well, anything that really he shouldn't be involved in, in, he's not. So, you know, you watch the whole show and it sort of looks like he's seeing all that stuff. He's not. When he's shooting a scene, he's shooting a scene. We can shoot around him. We do often anyway, because we're limited to the amount of uh, hours we get him in a day. He has to go spend a certain amount of time in school. So we, we sort of shoot his scenes out and then he's out in a school trailer. We've had a couple instances during table reads where he really needed to be there, but there was subject matter. we (laughs) <laughs> Either his parents or we didn't want him hearing or language. Right. So it's really cute. He wears these headphones and then his mom just like prompts him when it's time to talk. We take off his headphones and he does the scene <laughs> and then we put it back on. It's really adorable. But, you know, listen, I'm a mom. My kids are um, a little bit younger than him. So I'm really aware of what is appropriate and what's not. I also personally feel like he wasn't directly involved in anything that was that inappropriate. The fact that we have him wear girls' clothes every once in a while 
you know, he asked about that. And I said, because Ben likes to wear girls clothes sometimes. And that's really all you have to say to a kid. I asked him if he had any more questions. He didn't. And that's that. And I think that's pretty great. Yeah, that's not that's not something I found inappropriate for him to know. I wanted to ask you about that in particular, that episode where he's kind of just where Ben is kind of playing around with, you know, gender fluidity or however you want to kind of categorize it. Um, And -hmm. I think it's so well handled on the on the show. And there's one scene in particular where your character is saying, you know, I don't do what you want. Like, don't worry about who you like, like, just, you know, like who you like, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. And is that kind of, I mean, there's a political element to that. Was that something that you guys consciously wanted to put into the show or it just sort of arrived organically when that episode was being put together? I don't think John and Dave did. I just thought they, they wanted, they thought it would be really funny. And, and that was that Mickey was dressing him up like this for her own personal gain. So she didn't have to drive him to school, could just walk right across the street. Um, <laughs> I thought it would be really interesting and important. I mean, I always want, and we all, the three of us always want it to be funny, number one, but I just thought it was a really good opportunity to make a statement also about gender fluidity, transgender, anyone, kids who are just confused, who feel different. Um, somebody that may just be in crisis. Like we don't know what's going on with Ben. Maybe he just wants to wear his mom's clothes. Maybe he wants to wear girls' clothes. Maybe he feels like a girl. We don't really know, but we don't really address it. The one thing I wanted to make sure was that whatever it was, it was okay. Right. Yes, exactly. That was important to me. I sort of I sort of wanted to get that in there. But I mean, number one, Mickey's a selfish person and she she, you know, wanted to do whatever she needed to do to benefit herself. It just so happened that getting him into a girls' school would be great for her. I thought there was an opportunity there to also show a little bit of heart without beating people over the head with it. Right. Yeah. Well, I want, yeah, I'm curious about that because, you know, she is a selfish person and a lot of the people in the show behave pretty badly, but the show yeah. is not without heart. I mean, you know, that sounds kind of treacly and like, you know, there's like a special moment at the end of every, every episode. There's not. But like, <laughs> But there is, you know, there's not that full house violin strings, you know, moral no. lesson. But like, how how conscious do you have to be to sort of keep that calibration in playing the character? And, you know, you're a producer on the show and sort of maintaining that tone. Is that is that like a lot of work or does it come naturally? No, I mean, the it's pretty easy to not have it beat you over the head. I mean, we think it's funny to have deplorable characters. So that part, that part is easy. I want, I, I'm aware that we're on Fox and that we're doing a family show. And, you know, it was, they, John and Dave paid me a very sweet compliment when we first went out to lunch, when they wanted to talk to me about the possibility of actually doing this show. And they said, I mean, I know that they think that I'm really funny, which is wonderful, but they also said, we see how you are with your kids. And I mean, I'm really goofy with them and we're silly, but I love them very much. And they, I, they said, I don't know that people know that side of you. And that just is going to shine through if you're dealing with kids. Like I can be a real piece of shit, but if I'm dealing <laughs> with kids, you're going to see, <laughs> you're going to see like a little bit of heart come through. So that was a, that was a, a lovely compliment. I don't think you get to see that side of me when I'm playing Sweet D. <laughs> no, well, not, not, not really. No. <laughs> Sadly. I'm also curious, like for our listeners who might not really know necessarily what the exact, what does it mean in terms of your executive producer credit? How does, how does that job function for you on the mic? Like what, what are, what are your sort of responsibilities in that front of, you know, aside from being the star of the show? 
Well, if I was going to be this title character, I needed to make sure that this, that the tone of the show was something that I wanted it to be. So, you know, whether people loved it or hated it, I would be okay with it because it was the, it was the product that I wanted to put out. And thankfully they were like, oh yeah, 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 that's exactly what we want. Like it's a true partnership. And it was really important to be involved in the casting process. I needed to cast these people because I come from 12 years of a show where the four of us, five of us get along so well and we have a very similar sense of humor. We can just sort of play around together. Going to work is fun and it makes a huge difference, obviously. And working with kids is tricky. You don't really ever know what you're, what you're going to get. And I wanted to make sure that especially, well, all of the characters, but the Sabrina character, you know, a bitchy, angsty teenage girl could be really annoying after about two minutes. Nobody really wants to see that. And so that was very important to me to find the person who could pull that off in a very cold way that wasn't bitchy and annoying. Does that make sense? And it, it does. Sophia yeah. Just, yeah, she just did such an amazing job. I mean, she was the only, for me, she was the only contender. She walked in and auditioned and it was the scene where I'm trying, in the pilot where I'm trying to bum a cigarette from her. And she's like, no, she just played it so cool and not bitchy at all. And she just played it as though she was just so much better than me and sort of just looked down upon me. And I thought it was so great. You know, it's that kind of chemistry. You just have to make sure you have that with people that you're, that you're working with. Cause I think it translates and people can feel it. Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's a really natural dynamic between all of you guys, in, including the younger kids, which is super rare. You know, you feel like on a lot of shows with children, not to name names, but like they're just, you know, a lot of like kind of stage kids, you know, and they're just sort of very up yeah. and big. But you don't see that on this, which is which is impressive. And I think that really helps with the kind of darker tone of the show. You know, it would be super creepy to have Absolutely. like... Yeah, like a Disney kid kind of there, saying these and doing these things. Yeah, exactly. There's a real stereotypical kind of stereotypical sort of kid acting thing where they're in, using too much inflection, and mm-hmm. like I, I'm I'm really hyper aware of that. And it's you know, look on a typical television set, actors don't give up other actors notes. It was so important to me to also be a producer so that I could coach them and feel really comfortable with it. And they're all, they, they know that and they're very open and I will, you know, take 15 minutes and go and work with Jack and we will, we'll come up with how we're going to do it and then we can play around and I, while we're shooting, can back him up and we can start over and it's just important to me to be able to coach them like that. And I think I do it in a way where I, I want to be helpful. You know, they know that I'm trying to make the best product. And I think that they're, hopefully it just makes them feel like they're in good hands, you know. And and going back to the, when you said, you know, you've been on Sunny for, you know, 12 years. And so that's this very intense kind of, you know, long, longstanding work situation. And you've worked obviously in other things since you've done a lot of voice work. You did Finding Dory recently, but the, the Mick is really your first like live action series that you've done since since it's always sunny, mm-hmm. what was that like? Like kind of showing up on a different set with a different crew? Obviously, some familiar faces, but like, was that a culture shock, or did you kind of did you kind of slide right into it? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very different experience. I definitely feel like everyone's looking at me on this show, sort of make it work or tell them if I think it's working. And on Sunny, I just kind of have to show up and do my job and go home. And having a whole new crew and, and all new actors, it's, but it was, it's very exciting. I mean, I love the production part of it. I like doing, I like being involved in 
script notes and acting notes. And yeah, I mean, there's just a, I, I wear a lot more hats on this show, so it's a very different feeling, but, but I love it. It feels like I'm all grown up. <laughs> <laughs> has there been anything in terms of script notes? Has there been anything where you're like, I love this, but we're on Fox. We cannot do this. Like it, does that, does that come up ever? Oh no, no, no. I'm, I'm the one who's like, I, I love this. And can somebody else go and just tell Fox that we're going to do it? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I like it. I mean, look, my sense of humor, I don't think it needs to be inappropriate. I just think that as far as uh, standards and practices goes for a network, they're not used to it. But I don't. I will always argue that there's a way to get what we want in there in a palatable way. No, I yeah. never want to shy away from that. I kind of want to force it, force it in because I think people like it. They're just not used to it. No, I, I, and I think that I've, I've, what I, one of the many things I admire about the show is that you guys are very sly about how you get things in, like certain kind of references or turns of phrase that like sound kind of innocuous, but like actually mean something else. Like, I think it's very clever and, and it, you know. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that'll just go over the heads of anyone who's not supposed to hear stuff like that. I mean, I let my kids watch a bunch of episodes and one of my kids just turned five. He doesn't know what see you next Tuesday means. And so when Ben asks and I say, that taco Tuesday and all that stuff. I mean, he, he's like, all right, he doesn't get it. Um, I'm not even <laughs> right. sure Fox got it. I'm surprised we got that in there. <laughs> That's our theory well, is that someone over at Fox didn't understand what see you next Tuesday meant, but oh, well it worked. Hey, it's, it's, it's in the can now. So it's, <laughs> what, what could they do? So now you guys have been renewed for a second season. Congrats on that. Um, Thank you. That's very exciting. Now, I'm curious from a from you know you when you started it's always sunny in 2005. The TV landscape was really different. It was yes. just less crowded, I think. So, yes. how with a new show like this, how do you kind of get noticed and sort of get buzz behind it? I mean, is it all about the social media stuff? I mean, do was there any sort of strategy there for you guys, or was it just like focusing on the product? Well, because I come from Sunny, where for the first you know four, five, six seasons our viewership was nothing, but it was a really good quality show. And we had hardcore group of fans who really believed in us. I'm much more of a quality versus quantity person. So I kind of felt like, you know what, I'm going to make the best show that I can make on a network and be really proud of it. And if we only do one season, that's okay with me. Fox, of course, does not take that same viewpoint and it's very important to them to market it and have people watch it. So they did a really amazing job of marketing it for us. I mean, having our first episode come on January 1st, New Year's Day, after all the football games, it was, it was just so well marketed. So I kind of leave that to them. I think they, they would like me to be more active on social media than I am. And I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm just, I'm that person that doesn't want to just show up every five minutes with something not that interesting to say just to show up. So I'm trying like we're, it's a, it's a good partnership. Like they're pushing me to do more and I am pushing them to even just the phrasing on the billboards. That was so important to me that it, I mean, we, we argued about that and we went in and had meetings with marketing and I was like, I don't like this. This isn't my voice or my brand of comedy. And we really talked about it and we figured something out and, it's getting, it's, it's like being in a new relationship. I'm used to FX and I, it's very different, but there's a lot of really amazing benefits to being on Fox. Like the amount of support they're putting behind marketing this show is I'm just really grateful for because I'm not used to having to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole kind of different ballgame, I would guess, but it's worked out so far. So that's, that's great. 
Um, before I let you go, I was curious, is there anything you can tease for an, the upcoming season or or even the upcoming season of It's Always Sunny, the next season of that? Like any any way that, that uh, either show is going to go that, that would maybe speak to the moment with politically or anything like that? Well, I will say that <laughs> I love John and Dave so much and they worked their little asses off in this season and it was so much work and I think they knew it was going to be a lot of work, but it was a bit of a shock. I mean it all comes back to them. And I was such a pain in the ass about like, Hey, this is really good, but I think it's got to be punched up more. I think it needs another pass. They are taking a couple months off (laughs) and they Mm -hmm. deserve it. And I want them to go and rest and not talk about the Mick at all. And then we'll start back up in the writer's room in June and I'll have more answers for you then. But I mean, one of the fun things that we get to do is figure out where they're going to live because we burned the house down. And I'm pretty excited about that. Politically, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm always I'm always wanting to throw little things in there, but we haven't really talked about we haven't talked about that, that yet. As far as Sunny goes, we left off with Dennis leaving and moving away, so we got to see if that sticks or not. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and uh, and and was it <laughs> didn't uh, Mac kind of came out right? Mac came out. Yeah, Mac came yeah. out, um, which I loved, and I loved how much. I mean, there's just a huge chunk of the nation that appreciated that so much, and we got so so much support and like, positive feedback for that because at the end of the prior season, he comes out when we're on a ship that's sinking, and then right. as soon as we're saved, he takes it back. And the LGBTQ community was so sad and, like, hurt and disappointed, and we felt so bad about that because, I mean, for us, it's obvious that Max gay. It's just that... He doesn't right. want to admit it, you know, because of all that feedback, we were like, God, let's just have him come out and be out and be proud of it. I thought that was an amazing scene. I thought it was yeah. really cool. Yeah, it was it was nice because um, a lot of that show kind of feels like the episodes are discreet, but this was sort of a longer arc that, you know, sort of got yeah. like, a, a lot of satisfaction at the end, which was cool. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Well, thanks again for talking. You know, you're on two great shows and, you know, The Make, I would urge everyone to watch it. it I believe all the episodes are on Hulu at the moment. So yeah, congrats, <laughs> Caitlin, on everything. It's, uh, it's a great show Thank and I can't so wait much. to see more. That does it for this week's The Little Gold Men. Thank you for listening and for talking to us and commenting. Please keep talking even when you are mad at us. You can find us all at VanityFair.com and on our own on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. I'm at Mike underscore Hogan. And I'm at Rylaws. And we're all at Little Gold Men, where many of you have been tweeting at us already. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best long con to get us to play his band's music on this podcast goes to Mike Hogan. On a personal note, in the early 2000s, I was part of an indie rock band named oh. after a uh, famous uh, British thief of Egyptian antiquities oh. called the Tokleys. And mummies were the theme of our first um, album. Cost, cost, cost. We never should have made it